0: Welcome to done and done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thanks for joining me for this episode continuing in our Palm Beach Chronicles. It seemed like a fine time to talk about two of the most infamous Palm Beach divorces, each with their own unique story. Dominic Dunn talks with both of these ladies on his visit to Palm Beach for Vanity Fair, and I think is really lucky to get an insight into both of these women at this particular time, 1986. Who are the two ladies in question today? Greg Dodge and Roxanne Pulitzer. Dirty divorces, dirty dealings from the high society set, and two really interesting women. From Dominic Dunn's piece, The Women of Palm Beach, again April 1986 from Vanity Fair, our man Nick will write, Palm Beach goes to a lot of people's heads. Although plenty goes on alcoholically and sexually in the upper circles, the real Palm Beachers tend to forgive one another's transgressions. I always have to do over my phone book each year because of all the divorces, a well-known hostess told me. Usually, you start to hear about the divorces in April after the season. At one party I attended, the guests were regaled with hilarious accounts of how a friend of theirs, an outraged wife, had taped romantic telephone conversations between her husband and her former maid, whom he had set up in West Palm Beach. Another tale, told with sadness concerned a lady whose life had recently nosedived after several divorces into alcoholism, drug addiction, and unfortunate liaisons, culminating in a marriage everyone frowned on, followed by her almost immediate death. It is only when social figures go public in the newspapers with their transgressions that the others can be, and are, unforgiving. Greg's not allowed in anyone's house, was a line casually said about Greg, Sherwood Dodge Moran. Roxanne has been squeezed out, was another line I heard about Roxanne Pulitzer, as if she were a Florida orange. For these two ladies, and many other less publicized ones, the paths of Palm Beach have been rocky. Although Mrs. Dodge and Mrs. Pulitzer continue to live in the environs of the grand world they were once a part of. Today, they are like fallen angels, cast-offs in the social scheme of things. Their futures are in the hands of literary agents, paperback publishers, and television producers, if, but only if, they tell it like it was. Today, we're going to Tell it the best we can. Two ladies, very different stories in our high society, Palm Beach world. Let's investigate. First up today, Greg Dodge. Greg Sherwood Dodge Moran. But Greg will leave the Moran after the death of that husband. Oh, friends, Greg Dodge, kind of a legend. The divorce say that never was. Greg has an incredible story. Small town girl, kind of looking for a little bit more in life, and ends up married to rich, 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 and manages to blow it all with A little stardom and some scandals in between. You know Dominic, Dunn wants a line in on this one when he comes to town. Greg has had quite a history by the time our man Nick makes it down to meet her in 1986. In his time in Palm Beach, he'll inquire. This is Dunn writing. Do you ever see Greg Dodge? I asked a lady who once worked on ball committees with her. Greg and I don't have the same kind of friends, she replied. Do you ever see Greg Dodge? I asked another lady who once knew her well. I saw her at Razook's trying on a full-length mink coat. She must have gotten an advance on that mini-series of hers. She thought for a moment and then added, No one sees Greg Dodge anymore. So this is 1986, What has happened so that no one sees Greg Dodge anymore? Dominic Dunn will see Greg Dodge when he visits Palm Beach in his quest to find the real Palm Beach. And we're going to talk about that particular meeting. But friends, our man Nick writes her bio that, whoa, simply put, is a paragraph with a lot to unpack about our girl Greg Dodge. We left with no one sees Greg Dodge anymore. Dunn will continue writing from this point to give a bio on Greg Dodge. I saw Greg Dodge, Dunn writes, and she still looks like Lana Turner, with whom she once acted in The Merry Widow. Greg was a little girl from Wisconsin whose real name was Dora Fielstad. She became a Miss America contestant and later the Chesterfield girl. At 27, married Horace Dodge, the automobile heir, had a son by him, became his widow after several months of separation, inherited $13.5 million, married her bodyguard, Danny Moran, who used to be a New York cop, lived in a mansion in Palm Beach, a Fifth Avenue apartment, an estate in Greenwich, Connecticut, a house in the south of France, a country house in Windsor, England, and a yacht, the Delphine, 355 feet, which had a crew of 55. She went bankrupt, had all her possessions sold out from under her by court order to pay her creditors, went through more lawsuits than you could count, including one for libel against her one-time best friend, Mary Sanford, the Queen of Palm Beach. She was with Danny Moran in their bedroom when he shot and killed an intruder and within hearing range when he shot and killed himself. She is currently living in reduced circumstances in Palm Beach with her son, John Dodge, 32, and her small grandson. That is quite a pricey. But Greg's story is so much more dynamic than what Dominic Dunn fits into that paragraph. Her story is way more than a paragraph. Let's unpack it a little bit before we get to our man Nick meeting up with Greg Dodge in 1986. Greg Dodge, again, born Dora Mae Fielstad in New York on October the 21st, 1923. Dora Mae, as she was named at birth, was three years old when her mother moved to her hometown of Beloit, Wisconsin. And Dora was adopted by her mom's new husband, Mons Fjellstad. Beloit is where it's at. Dora May's gonna grow up there. She'll graduate from Beloit High School in 1941. But the thing for Dora May, small town living, tiny tiny dreams, no, thank you. Dora May has bigger, bigger plans. There is a wonderful piece I found from the Beloit Daily News. This is Dora May's hometown. The piece was written by Deborah Jensen DeHart. This is July 24th, 2011. I loved this particular piece because it really did round out a bit more about Dora May, about Greg in her younger years. Deborah Jensen DeHart does a really nice job at filling out what I think is the spirit of Greg Dodge. I want to take us into the article here. Again, all sources are on doneanddone.com. Deborah Jensen DeHart writing from the Beloit Daily News. Well, recently I learned Dora May died in Palm Springs, Florida, in an apartment. She would have been about 87. Remember, this is 2011. Greg Dodge has just passed away. The obituary, which ran, was short and to the point, Deborah Jensen DeHart continues. She died May 27th and a short graveside service was held July 6th in Royal Palm Beach, Florida, according to the Palm Beach Post. She is survived by her son, John Dodge Sr., and grandson, John Dodge Jr. For the sake of our investigation, I am going to read that obituary. I think it means a little bit more with Deborah Jensen DeHart continuing to round out Greg a little bit more. This is from The Shiny Sheet, the Palm Beach Daily News, July 5th, 2011, written by Shannon Donnelly. Greg Dodge, heiress, actress, and socialite, dies. Greg Dodge, a former resident of Palm Beach and colorful socialite, died Friday, May 27, 2011, at the age of 87. Born in New York on October 21st, 1923, Dora May, as she was named at birth, was three years old when her mother moved to her hometown of Beloit, Wisconsin, and Dora was adopted by her mother's new husband, Mons Fielstad. A strikingly beautiful young woman, she moved back to New York immediately after high school and transformed herself from a small-town Midwestern girl to a sophisticated city beauty, enrolling in the Powers Modeling School, changing her name to Greg Sherwood, and switching from brown hair to platinum blonde. After her first brief marriage ended, she returned to work as a model and an actress in small roles on television, stage, and films. She played the role of a showgirl in The Merry Widow with Fernando Lamas and Lana Turner, the likely genesis of erroneous reports that described her as a showgirl. Her number of husbands is a matter of debate. Some sources say four, others cite five. Her romances, however, included Joe DiMaggio and Dean Martin. She was 28 when she met the married 51-year-old automobile heir, Horace Dodge Jr. Two years later, he divorced his fourth wife. The pair married immediately after and had a son, John. The couple moved to Palm Beach, where Greg Dodge became active on the charity and social scenes. She once wrote, Men are the silent black tie bystanders whose most important appendage is a checkbook. She spent Dodge's multi million dollar fortune freely until in 1961 he filed for divorce, telling friends, I can't afford that woman anymore. Horace Dodge died before the divorce was final, and although he had excluded her, in his will, and essentially died penniless, she successfully sued his mother for millions. Two years later, Greg Dodge, by then in her 40s, married Danny Moran, 30, a former NYPD police officer whom she had hired as a bodyguard. Mr. Moran died by suicide in 1978. Mrs. Dodge, who after Moran's death dropped his name, dabbled in publishing, producing a short-lived society tabloid that was ultimately unsuccessful in spite of her edgy observations. I spit fire, she once said in an interview. I always have and I always will. In 1978, she filed for bankruptcy. After amassing $3.5 million in debt. A year later, she was arrested for grand larceny after misappropriating money from her son's $8 million trust fund. John Dodge posted his mother's $100,000 bond. She eventually pleaded guilty to taking $434,000 from her son. The sum included $75,000 fraudulently obtained from a New York bank. Mrs. Dodge is survived by her son John Dodge and her grandson John Dodge Jr. Friends are invited to the graveside burial service, which will take place at 11 a.m. Wednesday at Our Lady Queen of Peace Cemetery. This is on Southern Boulevard in Royal Palm Beach. So there's the shiny sheet obituary. But what? There is so much more unpacking to do to all of that. And this is where I love Deborah Jensen-DeHart from the Beloit Daily News. She has feelings about all of it. And I love that she really wants to round out Greg Dodge in way more than Greg gets in her obituary. Continuing from Deborah Jensen-DeHart in regard to that obituary, it never mentions her great hunger to climb to the top to be somebody. It doesn't mention her beauty, her stardom, and what some might call bad luck with men combined with poor judgment in financial and family matters. But then I guess that's the stuff of which legends are made and broken. According to the Beloit Historical Society Files, she went to New York City with dreams of becoming a model. She enrolled at the Powers Modeling School and changed her name to Gregg after the Gregg method of shorthand and Sherwood after Sherwood Drive in Beloit. Her first attempts at stardom didn't work out, apparently, and she came back to Beloit for a while and worked in a store as a clerk. But soon her adventurous side overruled the more conventional life, and bored, she headed back to New York to try her hand at acting. The long-legged blonde with the model's figure apparently won a part in the Broadway musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She also won bit parts in a few movies. In the late 1940s, she married Walter Sherwin, a ticket taker for the New York Yankees, who embezzled about $43,000, most of which went to his wife and her parents. They were divorced, and Walter Sherwin went to jail. But Dora May was learning fast how to make her way upon the stage and how to win the spotlight. In 1948, she appeared on the cover of Wink, a girly magazine before Playboy's time. A faded copy remains in the BHS archives. This is the Beloit Historical Society. According to the cover story, Greg Sherwood, as everyone knows, is just about the most famous showgirl and model ever to invade the torrid atmosphere of New York nightlife. The story goes on to praise her photogenic ability and her brains as well. Dora Mae, y'all, becomes her own press agent, dyed her brunette locks a shade of golden blonde, and set out to show off her best assets. This she accomplished by wearing a revealing swimsuit, cut to the max. The publicity pictures were a hit, and she was seen on the front pages of newspapers across the country, according to Wink magazine. Soon after, she became the highest-paid showgirl in New York City and also posed for other magazine covers, fashion designers, and national advertisers. If only Dora May had just kept working and promoting herself, searching new avenues and believing in herself, Perhaps the rest of the chapters of her life would not have been so tempestuous. But it was not to be. Dora May also had a strong urge to rub elbows with the rich and famous and to be rich. In about 1952, when she was 28, she met Horace Dodge, heir to the Dodge automobile fortune. The two married, and Dora May apparently wedded. Her appetite for spending. The couple produced a son, John Dodge, but were going through a divorce at the time of Horace's death in about 1964. At the age of 41, Dora May married again, this time to Daniel Moran, a former police officer who sold real estate 14 years her junior. According to the files, the two went through the Dodge fortune in no time. With lavish parties, traveling, and other expenditures, and as the story goes, she was left bankrupt by 1978. It only got worse as in 1979, the pair were arrested for bilking Dora May's son out of roughly $434,000. In the end, Moran killed himself. Dora May was never sent to jail. She was 57 at the time. Greg Dodge will meet our man Nick in 1986. And here, Dominic Dunn, after unpacking that initial introductory paragraph, Dominic Dunn will continue from the women of Palm Beach about meeting Greg Dodge in reduced circumstances in 1986. Dunn writes, She didn't want me to go to her house. She picked the nearby Epicurean restaurant where we met for late afternoon tea for me and vodka martinis for her. I don't usually wear all this jewelry in the daytime, she said, about her diamond rings and diamond and onyx earrings, but I was being photographed by Helmut Newton. She is pretty, funny, wounded, down but not out. Although she was most recently Mrs. Danny Moran, she calls herself Mrs. Horace E. Dodge again. Her Ocean to Lake estate on South Ocean Boulevard has been sold. John DeLorean now lives in her apartment at 834 Fifth Avenue. Leona and Harry Hemsley now live in her Greenwich, Connecticut estate. The other places and the yacht are gone too. She is used to telling her story and tells it well, as if she were pitching it to a producer or an editor. I buried my second husband and my mother in the same week, she said. I went through $13.5 million. I know, Palm Beach. It's a social battlefield. Are you still a member of the clubs, I asked. No, she replied. No one asked me to resign. I couldn't afford the dues any more. Now if I joined, I'd have to pay up past dues, which are fifteen or 20000 in each club. Do you ever hear from any of the people you used to know down here? She replies, the women are generals down here. They run everything. The men just become black-tied, silent bystanders. Mary Sanford and I used to run this town socially. Nobody gave a party without checking with us first. Many people in Palm Beach think they're social, but they're just ticket buyers meeting other ticket buyers. True society in Palm Beach is in the home. Do you ever hear from any of the people you used to know down here? I repeated. Her eyes filled with tears. We sat for a moment in silence and Greg Dodge responds. I don't choose to see those people. I haven't wanted to see anyone. I've been recovering my energies. It is a bit sad here because to recover her energies in this time period, that's exactly what Greg Dodge is doing. I'm going to take it back to Deborah Jensen Hart here to conclude. The last 30 years of her life are somewhat of a mystery. In the Beloit Memorial High School Alumni Directory, it lists Dora F. Dodge, as the owner and publisher of IS Publishing Incorporated, which could mean international society publishing. Whatever road she chose next, apparently, it led her away from the glamorous life of a wealthy, jet-setting socialite and the tabloids. But those who knew her have not forgotten her great beauty and the vitality for living she once possessed. Comments posted on her obituary in the Palm Beach Post include, Greg had a zest for life and smiled in the face of adversity. Also, she was a beautiful, glamorous lady. They don't make them like her anymore. She was a survivor. Greg Sherwood sure dodge. What a story. Not exactly a divorce, but love a little bit hard on her. There are a lot of stories about the Women of Palm Beach, there's one more that we're going to follow up on. I love the way Dominic describes this. Roxanne has been squeezed out, right, is another line he hears. As if she were a Florida orange. Oh, Roxanne Pulitzer, another fallen angel in our Palm Beach Chronicles. We have heard the name Pulitzer mentioned throughout this month of stories let's go ahead and dive into this bit of the saga. For the divorce of Peter and Roxanne Pulitzer was scandalous. Oh, sneaky Pete Pulitzer. For Pete's sake, it's Peter Pulitzer who has two wives because his previous divorce to Lily Pulitzer really shook up the Palm Beach scene as well. Peter's first wife, the infamous Lily Pulitzer. And ah, what a love story they have. And it's okay that that one didn't work out. Because here comes Roxanne. But goodness, unlike Greg Dodge, who has some television and film stardust attached to her to get her into the scene, Greg Dodge runs the scene with Mary Sanford. Poor Roxanne Pulitzer never stands a chance. Now, I have covered both Peter Pulitzer's divorces, the first one to Lily, the second to Roxanne, over on Trashy Divorces in full detail. I'm not going to rehash all of that same material. Please do check the sources for links to those episodes if you want the full unveiling of those divorce sagas. But I am going to take our essential players in this, Lily, Peter, Roxanne, up to our man Nick meeting with Roxanne in 1986. Let's go ahead and set a baseline on Peter here as he is the center in both divorce dramas, with the worst really, really being Roxanne. Born Herbert Peter Pulitzer. Oh, he's going to be known as Peter. He's born March the 22nd, 1930. Herbert Peter is the son of Herbert Pulitzer, known as Tony and Gladys Munn. I want you to remember the last name of Munn, that's M-U-N-N, two N's. We're going to hear about Gladys Munn again, we're going to hear about Dorothy Munn, we're going to hear a few Munns coming up, but Peter's pedigree is really, really impressive when it comes to high society. Peter's maternal grandparents were Charles and Carrie Louise, nay, Gurney Munn. The Munn name is a big, big deal in the land of high society. That's just his maternal side. Peter's paternal grandparents were newspapermen Joseph Pulitzer, yes, the founder of the prize, and all of it, and Catherine Davis. Catherine Davis is a descendant of Jefferson Davis and from pretty high society herself in Washington, D.C. There is no lack of pedigree or high society credentials anywhere in this story. When it comes to Peter Pulitzer or Lily for that matter. Like most children of wealthy parents, in the Palm Beach set, Peter is raised mostly by nannies. He will attend St. Mark's in Southborough, Massachusetts, from which he graduates as, whoa, quite a reputation. Enviably handsome, athletic, charming, undeniably cocky, Peter Pulitzer is. He's headed off to the Ivy League, but Honestly, like college, just not really his thing. Peter will take $500,000 of his family money and decides to become an entrepreneur. He'll buy a liquor store, which isn't the worst idea, there's solid money in that. He'll buy a bowling alley. Peter will expand this half a million dollar investment to include citrus groves, cattle ranches, a Palm Beach restaurant, and lots of real estate and hotels. Add all that to the sexy, handsome, daring, racy, Peter Pulitzer is the package. Enter Lillian McKim. Oh, Lily, Lily's a middle child. Her father is Robert McKim, dude with a lot of cash. But Lily's mother is even richer. Her name is Lillian Bostwick. Lily's mom and dad both old-line families. But Lily's mom, Lillian, her grandfather... Jabez Bostwick was one of the people who helped Rockefeller, Flagler, and Harkness create the Standard Oil Company. Lillian Bostwick is that kind of rich. Bostwick, where have we heard that name before? Let's spiderweb and tie that together. Lillian Bostwick is the sister of Albert Bostwick, who we remember is the second husband of Molly Wilmot. Lily's mom, Lillian, will marry again. As soon as she and Robert McKim get divorced, Lillian remarries again pretty much immediately to Ogden Phipps. Ogden Phipps is the son of Henry Carnegie Phipps. Yes, that Carnegie. Ogden's grandfather, Henry, is the second largest shareholder in Carnegie Steel. Ogden Phipps' mother's side is equally as moneyed. Like, researching all of this is a very, very expensive and very well-connected rabbit hole. Lillian, (laughs) Lily Pulitzer's mom, having fallen in love with Ogden Phipps, he's a racing legend. It is said Ogden Phipps pays Robert McKim $1 million to give Lillian her divorce. Lily, middle child in all of this aftermath, life is pretty good. Uh, Everyone loves Lily. She attends all the right schools. She has all the right friends, including the Bouvier sisters, Jacqueline and Lee. The Phipps family and the Pulitzer families, the Bostwick families, every name we heard, the Carnegies, the Munns, they're all connected. They're all in this Palm Beach set. Peter and Lily will meet in 1950 with all the romantic coconuts and island breezes. And soon enough, Peter and Lily fall in love and off they go to Maryland. They elope. Peter and Lily come back, settle in Palm Beach. They'll buy a cozy clapboard house on Lake Worth. And when I say cozy, please know the kitchen can seat 40 folks. Peter and Lily throw legendary parties. It's a place everybody wants to go, full of kids, dogs, music, energy, fun. And they live there year-round, because that's where all Peter's business interests are, right? Orange groves. And Lily, kind of looking for something to do. She's helping out, squeezing orange juice in the groves for her husband, Peter. Life gets messy, squeezing oranges, and here's where Lily, tagging up with her friend, Laura Clark, begin to create her quintessential designs with a little help from Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy and her daughter two of the first to appear in print in the Lily Pulitzer shift dress, and the rest is history. Lily also, during this time in her marriage with Peter, has four kids. But hey, four kids, the Lily Pulitzer brand is born. But unfortunately, the marriage between Peter and Lily is falling apart. They divorce as quietly as they marry. Peter and Lily Pulitzer split after 17 years of marriage in 1969, and this divorce shakes up Palm Beach. It's the couple that was always so solid and so in love, and what happened to them, and now all the other Palm Beach society set, begins to worry. What could happen to us? Could that same thing happen to us? And it's a big scandal. But don't worry, Lily's fine. She quickly will remarry Enrique Rousseau, one of those Cubans with all the money and former business partner of Peter Pulitzer. And good on them. Enrique and Lily, they live happily ever after. All things are good. But Peter Pulitzer is not to be outdone. He's handsome. He's wealthy. He's cocky. Really, really cocky, y'all. And living life as a single man and... Now that he's divorced, Peter doesn't have any need to hide his sleeping around. He'll spend from 1969 to mid 1970s, single, flying free, having fun. Woohoo. 1975, Enter Roxanne. It is in Palm Beach in a party that Peter is attending. Across the room, Peter sees a young, blonde Roxanne Rinkins. She's born February 10th, 1951. Roxanne is a kid from Casadega, New York, a small town about 60 miles southwest of Buffalo. She's the oldest of four kids, and it's not a great upbringing. Roxanne's father leaves her mother when Roxanne is about three years old. Mom actually asked Dad just to get out of town, and Dad does and never comes back. Fantastic. Mom remarries, and Roxanne is peppy. She's a cheerleader in high school. She will get married at the age of 19 just to get the heck out of Casadega, and off to Florida it is. Roxanne's new husband is in college. Roxanne will enroll in junior college here. She sells a little life insurance on the side. You know, it's important to work on your tan and stuff. But Roxanne and this first husband didn't last. The marriage ends one year later. So here we are, 1975, Roxanne, divorced, still living in the trailer court. Graduated from the junior college. There's a party one night where Roxanne and Peter meet. He is 21 years older than Roxanne. He's a businessman. He's well-established, and she's called a peppy-divorced cheerleader. She's 23 years old. In no way is she ever going to be accepted into Peter's high-society, well-connected, very established world like his previous wife who was the establishment. To be fair, Roxanne is up against a really tough set of circumstances. All of Peter's friends think Roxanne is a gold digger. They will... (laughs) Invites come to Peter's home once he and Roxanne live together, but these invites are sent specifying only Peter is invited. Come alone, please. The high society set in Palm Beach call Roxanne Foxy Roxy. And Peter and Roxanne, it's like mid-1970s, right? They really like sex, they really like drugs, and in the late 1970s in high society, they are not the only people who like sex and drugs. There are some escapades with some other couples, particularly the Kimberleys. Twin boys do come along for Roxanne and Peter in 1978, and with the birth of sons, this changes the dynamic a little bit. By early 1981, Peter Pulitzer is looking for his wife Roxanne to sign a post-nuptial agreement. This is where things go pretty bad. This is some dirty dealings. Roxanne says she never realized the kids would be an issue. He didn't want to have the kids in the first place. And there's this one particular paragraph that really is upsetting Roxanne. And she's like, if I sign this, you could divorce me tomorrow. So she gets mad. And it'll take a few days to calm down, but Peter doesn't really want to calm down. Peter tells Roxanne, with my money and my power and my name, I will destroy you if you fight me on this. And Roxanne says, at this point, I should have listened. Two weeks later, Peter sues Roxanne for child custody in the Florida courts and the dirtiest divorce of the early 1980s in Palm Beach is on. Peter wants this divorce. Roxanne does not really. This was about Peter taking and remaining in control. To avoid any bad publicity, Peter will offer Roxanne a midnight black Porsche $45,000 a year in alimony and child support, four years in their home, and a $200,000 home after that. Again, maybe Roxanne would have wanted to take that and just gone, been free, been happy, but Roxanne does not. Roxanne feels like she is owed a part of his fortune and with his twin sons, She wants to feel like she's been given a fair shake in this deal. To family and divorce court, it is. There are a lot of witnesses that Peter gets to say terrible things. Everyone from Palm Beach maids, friends, family Roxanne is going to get shafted. They recount her lovers, her drug use. Oh, this is worse. There's a New York Post headline about her using a trumpet for sexual gratification. Like, I don't know, there was a ceremonial trumpet from a seance thing they went to. She keeps it in her closet. Like, everything is turned into innuendo, dirty, dirty dealings on Roxanne's part. Like, legit, she never stands a chance. Peter will get on the stand and say, Roxanne's were... So insatiable that in order for him to keep up with her sexually, oh, he had to make terrible choices. That's why he did those mountains and mountains of cocaine just to keep up with my young wife who made me feel less than. Y'all, I can't even tell you. This is a sensational trial. Headline News Daily. Roxanne is accused of everything. Add on to everything we've just talked about. Oh, she's a drug smuggler, too. She sleeps with everyone. She's hanging off the chandeliers. Good Lord. Roxanne will claim that Peter is worth about $25 million. Peter's accountants, who he is paying, will say, Pish Posh, that $25 million is more like $2.5 million. We can hardly afford this divorce anyway. Roxanne should have taken the settlement she was offered in the beginning. There are 19 days of testimony pretty much railing Roxanne Pulitzer. The judge does make his ruling, and the judge will ha huh, believe that $2.5 million number and blame Roxanne for spending all of Peter's money so quickly. In Judge Harper's ruling, he observes, The wife entered this marriage with limited financial resources, a used automobile of unknown value, and $7,000 interest in a mobile home. On departing this marriage, which she destroyed, can you believe a judge actually writes that, y'all? Which she destroyed. She takes with her a $20,000 Porsche automobile purchased with the husband's funds, about $60,000 in jewelry, purchased in large measure with the husband's funds, $48,000 in rehabilitative alimony, $7,000 equity in the husband's boat, and $102,000 in attorney's fees. The judge will continue in his ruling. Primary physical residence of both children shall be with the husband, subject to frequent, continuing, and reasonable contact and visitation with the wife. There's an additional ruling that Roxanne is not able to remove her children from Palm Beach County without written consent from Peter or the court. The judge is not done yet. He will continue in his ruling because, you know, which she destroyed wasn't enough. Goodness. Ah, Judge Harper flagrant acts of adultery and other gross marital conduct demeans the sanctity of the marriage in the family unit, which will not be tolerated by an enduring society. It is improper to permit an errant spouse to destroy a marriage and then claim benefits equal to those which would have been enjoyed had the marriage remained intact. Roxanne Pulitzer, In addition, must peacefully vacate the marital residence by January 10th. The judge appends a complicated schedule and list of rules for children visits. And y'all, this is a terrible, terrible ruling. Let me tell you about Judge Harper. He's a good friend of Peter Pulitzer's. And Judge Harper left his regular criminal judge job to come on over to the civil courts just for like one year specifically to be the judge on this particular case. Roxanne never stood a chance. The deck was always going to be stacked against her. Even after Roxanne and Peter divorce, they are still sleeping together. It is wrapped up in some kind of nonsense, right? She, on some level, thinks that if she continues that aspect of the relationship with Peter, It will help more in her ability to see her children. But Roxanne is really gutsy, and she really gets screwed in the divorce, and lack of money will cause Roxanne to pose for Playboy in June of 1985. This is when Roxanne gets a check for $70,000. She will use some of that money to pay her divorce bills. Peter, Roxanne says, does not react favorably to that nude layout and parody of the Pulitzer scandals. In fact, Peter is so mad that he will cut Roxanne's visiting time with her children even more. Roxanne will author an autobiography called Prize Pulitzer, The Scandal That Rocked Palm Beach, in addition to three other novels. That autobiography was adapted into a made-for-television movie. Roxanne will state, though, that she's glad. She no longer has to pretend to be something she isn't. She says for a long time she was on the verge of losing Roxanne. She'll get a job teaching aerobics, this is 1985 after that Playboy layout, and earned about 75 bucks a week. Back in the day, she had the opportunity to marry other wealthy men, but Had up to that point declined. This is 1985. This is about the time our man Nick is going to meet with Roxanne. She is fresh off her divorce from Peter Pulitzer, just having posed for Playboy magazine. The terrible, terrible divorce trial is done. And now Roxanne in late 85, early 86 is at kind of a crossroads in the fallout from all of it. From the women of Palm Beach, this is Dominic Dunn writing. Where do you live? I asked Roxanne Pulitzer. Do you know where the mall is? She replied on the telephone from Inger's workout in West Palm Beach, where she is now an aerobics instructor. No. She gave me detailed instructions to a neighborhood across the bridge in West Palm Beach. Far removed from where she and Peter Pulitzer used to live. You'll see the house. There's a Porsche in the carport. What you see first after the Porsche in the carport in Roxanne Pulitzer's pleasant house are two junior-sized bicycles belonging to her eight-year-old twin sons. And there is Roxanne herself, the scandalous lady of the messiest divorce case in the history of Palm Beach society. After all the stories of cocaine addiction, sexual promiscuity, and lesbianism, I expected her to be defensive. but. She isn't. Roxanne, who was married to multimillionaire Herbert Peter Pulitzer for seven years, got a measly $50,000 in the divorce settlement. I said, I read somewhere you lived in a dump. Roxanne replies, I did right after the divorce, but it wasn't fair for the boys to come from Peter's house to my little place. I got some money when I posed for Playboy, so I decided the twins and I were going to have a nice place for a year. I'll probably have to move out when the lease is up, unless something happens from the book I'm writing or the miniseries. How often do you see your sons? She says, I lost custody of the boys, so I only get to see them four days a month. And I wasn't even declared an unfit mother. It's a jip. When you run into people from the clubs, do they speak to you? They were cool to me at first, but after I did Playboy and was on the Phil Donahue show, some of them sided with me. Do you regret things? Dunn asks Roxanne. The biggest mistake I made was during the trial when I said to the kids, no matter what, we'll always be together. Then I lost custody of them and they resented it. But they're getting over that now. All my friends deserted me. People I asked to be character witnesses for me left town. Listen, I had a good time on Coke for a while, up until the end, and then it turned and became bad. We stopped going to bed together and slept at different times, and then everything fell apart. Jackie Kimberly was my best friend. She and Jim and Peter and I were always together for years. Jackie took me to Petite Marmite for lunch before the trial and said, The handwriting's on the wall, and I can't afford to be seen with you, and I've never laid eyes on her again. She didn't even send me a note when I lost my kids. I can't forgive that. There's no question in most people's minds that the girl got rooked. It takes two to tango, but the real Palm Beach closed the circle around one of their own, and the outsider got left outside with no kids, no home, and no money. Dominic Dunn will ask her, would you ever go back over the bridge to that life again? And Roxanne responds, "Ah, beautifully, the rich life, you'd have to be stupid to go down that road again. Roxanne Pulitzer will have a few more romances after 1986, but in a bit of a twist of fate, I love this part of the story, Roxanne's latest husband, newest husband, this is in the early 2000s, bails Peter Pulitzer, her ex-husband, who treated her so badly out of dire financial straits. Roxanne does it because her son's money and investments were wrapped up in Peter's, and so Roxanne's hubby gonna be the mortgage holder on some of those properties and really get Peter out of some dire circumstances. I don't know, Roxanne Pulitzer may be the most authentic of the Palm Beach women that we have met so far, and I think the winner in the long run of the nastiest divorce to ever hit Palm Beach. Oh, this town and its scandals. Thank you, thank you, investigators, for joining me today. I am so grateful for you. Thank you for supporting Done & Done, for listening, for telling your friends, for your kind emails and reviews. As always, an enormous thanks to our Patreon community. I hope that you have enjoyed these episodes, our latest in the installment of Palm Beach Chronicles. Stay tuned. We're going to be back next Saturday with a few good stories. Wrapping up our month of fun on the sunny shores of Palm Beach. Friends, I am sending all the good your way. Have a wonderful week. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com.